This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. People are realizing suddenly where their food comes from and how having a local farmer is one of the great assets to a community that you could possibly... Even when my parents were divorcing when I was 13, me and my mom were so close and wouldn't even have to communicate with words. We could just kind of do it in the kitchen. This is The Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast Network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. And it requires going places that are not familiar to begin to expand the set of parameters by which you judge and you think about food. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. My sister Jessie used to wear a t-shirt with the words, Soup Ruined My Life spread across the front. She had this shirt made. This was her message. Soup was really a metaphor for having to live at home during university. Our father was faculty, tuition was half price, and they lived a 20-minute walk from campus. It was a no-brainer. I did it too, six years before. But living there meant our parents always witnessed fights with boyfriends, endured last-minute all-night study sessions, and heard the front door open long after midnight, or once at 6 a.m. in my case. That was the time I arrived home on foot after a particularly good dorm party, to the front door open and my father pacing around the car late for his early morning squash game, searching his pockets for the car keys. I tucked into the lilac bush in an attempt to wait it out until I remembered his keys were in my backpack, on my back. Just before his angina set in, I crept out of the shadows and handed him the keys. His eyes expressed relief and infuriation all in one glance. It was a look I knew so well. Jesse didn't infuriate my parents while at university. They were too tired after me. But instead, they infuriated her. That particular year, Jessie says our mom always had a ham bone or a chicken carcass bobbling away on the stove, bouncing around with wedges of onions, carrots, and turnip. Our mom was a soup maker, and this aroma was her signature scent. And so this scent became Jessie's signature scent, too. It permeated her dresses, her golden hair, her books, even her rollerblades, which she wore with those dresses almost every day to class. This is a problem most people would love to have, but not Jess. Every burst of soup aroma that wafted from her being during lectures reminded her that she should have gone into debt. She should have left home. So instead, she made a t-shirt. Today on the Food Podcast, we talk to Fanny Singer, writer, art critic, curator, editor, co-founder of the design brand Permanent Collection, and author of the memoir, Always Home, and daughter of the chef, educator, and organic farming champion, Alice Waters. Singer spent over a decade studying and living in England, but has recently returned home to Northern California. We explore the concept of home in this episode through travel, words, memory, our senses, and soup, and discover how it feels to find home wherever you go, today on The Food Podcast. 
I'm sitting in the sun porch at my parents' house, about to zoom with Fanny Singer. The St. Mary's River is behind me. I can hear loons on the water, chickadees at the bird feeder, and pheasants talking to each other from their mossy beds between the evergreens. Restrictions were lifted, and finally we can travel and visit family. Fanny is also at her mother's home, where she's been isolating these past few months. She was meant to be on a book tour right now, but instead she's at home in a cozy sweater, sitting cross-legged in an office chair, drinking green tea and Zooming. I can hear birdsong on her end, too. I've done a little research. Perhaps the American kestrel, a Californian thrasher, a northern harrier. So here we are, two adult women in our mother's houses, about to talk about the notion of home, the home we knew growing up, created by our mothers, which is more of a sensory experience than a physical dwelling. And because of this, home is something we can take with us anywhere. We spoke before the global conversation had shifted from perfecting sourdough to Black Lives Matter and defunding the police. Fanny's Instagram feed has shifted accordingly from food to democratic change. And the irony of the title of Fanny's book isn't lost on her. Always home. But never before have we needed the grounding that begins for some, and I wish for all, at home to find solace in this place, maybe even strength. That was the sort of unexpected outcome of the book ad at this moment, was that I hadn't really been thinking of it as like a toolkit for how to feel more oriented and grounded in this time. It was like, you know, I, I wrote the book over the last few years, but that's kind of, I think, what it's become for a lot of people. And people are using the recipe so much more than I thought. I think I, I kind of imagined also that they would just be this you know, added thing and texture, but not necessarily that they would be the recipes that people would gravitate towards. Because for me, they're really a historic kind of compendium of recipes that were meaningful bricks in the foundation. And actually people are really finding them so comforting and the simplicity of them is a good thing for a lot of novice cooks. And I mean, I'm happy that it's resonating with people. Always Home is Fanny Singer's life thus far, shared through the lens of food, But I'd also say it's a book about beauty. Of course, there are recipes, the bricks of her foundation, as she says. But they are perceived through the senses, almost as a form of self-care, where the aromas of past meals, the sound of her mother's running bath, a perfect handful of raspberries from the garden, the scent of a burning rosemary branch wave through the room to set the tone, all swirl together to create that grounding sensation of home. The book also tells the story of a girl raised in a restaurant, Chez Panisse, a restaurant that was already 12 when Fanny was born, a restaurant with a menu entirely, famously, built upon the produce of local organic farmers. Ruth Reichel, food writer and former editor of Gourmet magazine, worked as a cook at a small collective restaurant in Berkeley in the early 1970s, when Chez Panisse was in its infancy. In her memoir, Comfort Me With Apples, Reichel wrote that she gravitated to Berkeley because of her politics and found her people there. Alice Waters was one of them. Frustrated by raging against the Vietnam War, Reichel and her people put their energy into supporting local farming. They wanted to serve food that tasted like the food Alice Waters had eaten while traveling in France, 
food that hadn't been industrialized, food that tasted like real food. That was almost 50 years ago, and their active choice resonates today. And I think we're all being acquainted with it in a way that we did not expect. You know, people are realizing suddenly where their food comes from and how having a local farmer is one of the great assets to a community that you could possibly imagine. And also people are understanding the direct causality and just that the directness of that relationship. That like if you feed them with your cash, they can feed you with their produce. And it's a cycle like that. And it ensures that you have the capacity to be resilient, you know, when there's something like a pandemic. I can't tell you how thankful we are in California because we have so many farmers here still. You can hear the passion in Fanny's voice. She is Alice Waters' daughter. But she tells us in her memoir that as a 10-year-old, she snuck a Twix bar every night from her host family's kitchen while on a student exchange in France and ate her fair share of all-you-can-eat yogurt at the cafeteria at Yale while her friends were working in the campus garden created by her mother. She's relatable, funny, and oftentimes self-effacing. But fundamentally, she's always been on board with the family's philosophy for living. I mean, people are always like, did you rebel? You must have. Like, how did you rebel? I'm like, well, the thing is, when you have such good food coming to you and it's been so lovingly prepared, even if your mind, your teenage mind, like wants to rupture from the parent, it's like your body wants that nourishment. It's almost the animal response. The food that my mom was feeding me was so delicious, but it was also so nutritious. It would have been really self-sabotage to walk away from it. So instead, she walks toward it. And why not? The mother who believes vehemently in organic farming also grows lettuce and herbs in the garden for daily salads. She warms the kitchen with a wood-fired oven and famously sent Fanny off to middle school with a four-course lunch packed in a cooler bag the size of a carry-on suitcase. It was an easy relationship, Fanny says, where these gestures spoke loudly. Even when my parents were divorcing when I was 13, me and my mom and I were so close and wouldn't even have to communicate with words. We could just kind of do it in the kitchen. But it's also something that just when a philosophy makes so much sense. I often think my mom is an idealist, and she is, and I think it's important for her to kind of exist in a world of ideas, there's pragmatism in that vision, too. I think of my mother, the way she won't, or can't, sit down to relax if the lighting isn't right. Overhead lights don't exist in her world, only soft glows from the corners of the room. Or in my home, I think of coffee brewing, its aromatic tendrils twirling throughout the house, or garlic warming gently in oil, telling the family the dinner is on its way. Simple actions, but gifts for everyone. Generous mother gifts. They're the most generous. And yeah. it's actually one of the strangest things about being here in quarantine with her is just realizing that a lot of the way that she would express that generosity was through the restaurant, very directly being there and welcoming people and through a kind of expression of hospitality and conviviality that, you know, absent an audience and diners um, and friends is really a kind of loss. I can see, I can see it really tangibly. To remedy this, Fanny and her mother have been playing restaurant. Fanny goes for a long hike in the evenings, then returns home and knocks on the door. Her mother answers the door and says, How may I help you tonight? Singer, table for one? I'm running 15 minutes late for my reservation. 
Back at my home, the kids have just wrapped up a season spent zooming on the sofa with their teachers. The living room has been turned into a gym. My 16-year-old is laying on a weight bench, earbuds in. I've set up a makeshift podcast studio. There's a bolt of steam shooting from an Instapot in the kitchen. The scene is remarkably like British pop artist Richard Hamilton's 1956 collage titled Just What Is It That Makes Today's Home So Different, So Appealing? The collage features an open-concept living room crammed with up-to-the-minute objects of desire, a vacuum cleaner with an extra-long hose allowing the cleaner to travel up the carpeted stairs far from the plug. There's a recording device, a large television, a muscle man, and a sexy housewife perched on the sofa. I can't claim to be her, but otherwise, the tone of that 1956 collage is remarkably like a typical North American family in isolation, surrounded by the material goods we crave as a society. Fanny Singer received a PhD from Cambridge on the subject of Richard Hamilton. Hamilton explored the material world, technology, politics, and consumer society through modern mediums like collage, printmaking, and later computer technology and inkjet printing. Alice Waters eschews technology. She prefers to take baths. Showers are too noisy. She poaches eggs in a wood-fired oven. Fanny says she recently managed to sneak a waffle maker into her kitchen. It was a radical move. I can't help but wonder... Was Fanny drawn to Richard Hamilton's work because it was so different than life, Shay Alice? No, it wasn't a rebuke of that at all. It was, I mean, I found it strange that in the end, I, I did end up talking about or looking so closely like computer technologies and their evolution and the advancement in digital imaging and like coding and all this stuff that actually, like, I'm kind of a Luddite. Like, I can barely operate my computer, you know? <laughs> and here I am just rather fluent and versed in the evolution of digital technology, especially in Britain. But I loved that he was just unbelievably intrepid. He would constantly refresh what he was doing, the way that he was mark-making or the subject matter, or just pivot, like philosophically almost. The Oxford English Dictionary defines intrepid as having resolute fearlessness or bravery. Fanny has also described him as calculatedly iconoclastic, a rule breaker, a destructor of accepted beliefs. For Alice Waters to open a restaurant in 1971 in a house with only a small fixed menu built upon the produce of local farmers in a time when industrial farming was the norm in America, I'd say that's intrepid too. So perhaps the pendulum wasn't swinging as far away from where she came from as I had thought. I was trying to flesh out how Alice Waters' daughter found her own voice. When you're named after Fanny, a character in your mother's favorite Marcel Pagnol movie, and as a child, you're the subject of a series of cookbooks written by your mother, Fanny, a child's restaurant, and Fanny in France, travel adventures with a chef's daughter. How do you discover you? Moving to England to study and live for over a decade was a start. I needed to go someplace where I felt less tethered to my mom in a way. I mean, we were speaking all the time, but I just, I describe sometimes the Alice Waters' daughter as being the kind of epithet that I can't shake. It's always how I'm introduced. 
It is in fact how I am described on the Google knowledge panel, but I have to figure out how to change that. It just says Alice Waters' daughter. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> um, she was respected by people in the food industry in England, but she was not terribly well known. I did not feel like I was walking around with her specter sort of clinging about me. And I felt like I was doing things, you know, in a highly autonomous way. I was making choices about my intellectual life and what I was going to pursue and who I was going to see. And, and of course, food was like a huge leitmotif of my life and always will be and always has been. And I was the good cook in the family as opposed to my mom. You know, people like didn't have any point of reference there. Yeah. It was nice. And also just to feel like, okay, I've done that. I actually thought I would live in London forever. So I wasn't, it wasn't even that I was like, okay, that was good. I'm, I'm ready to go home. It was, it was actually more of a confluence of other circumstances, some of them visa related. And, and I was like, well, I guess, I guess I can go back to California for now. And then just discovered that it was a good time to be back. To come back home, but also to the place where she learned printmaking. When Fanny was an undergraduate and studying fine art, she spent a few summers apprenticing in Berkeley at Paulson Press, where they ran an intaglio press. Intaglio printing is a process where lines are cut into copper plates, ink is dabbed into the recessed lines, the excess ink is wiped away, then paper is laid down and pressed using a big, heavy roller. That's really where I learned how to properly like, print a fine art edition, copper plate etching. I think in a way it was because it's like cooking, you know, I mean, there's such a tactility to it and such an evident process and a chemistry, but there's also so much intuition in how you, there are, there are certain times, of course, like you don't want to overexpose the plate to acid or whatever, and you have to be careful, but there's still room for imagination in how you created the informal effects with the print. It reminds me of a recipe, one that is passed down through the family, but slowly, over time, as kitchens change, as ingredients are substituted, and hands become more confident, the recipe shifts and becomes yours, and your voice becomes clearer. I've read that lithography, another form of printmaking, was invented in the late 1700s as a way to reproduce sheet music for orchestras. Imagine handwriting sheet music again and again. Phil Sanders, master printmaker at the Robert Blackburn Printmaking Workshop in New York, says that when an artist gets hold of something that allows you to work in a new way, they will always take those tools and use them for their own artistic purposes. Perhaps words are also Fanny's tools. Her mother thinks so. My mom says something that I really like, which is she and I share a sort of acuity of palate and attentiveness to taste and but she's like, you have the actual lexicon, like the vocabulary to describe it. She's like, I feel like these are the lost words that I haven't been able to put to certain words, which was the kind of highest compliment in a way coming from her. But also because I think that we have at our disposal such an expansive vocabulary, such a narrow vocabulary gets applied to food. And there's so much more available to us in terms of how specific we can be about things. Because we also, I think, as humans, like our senses are connected. We don't smell independently of touch necessarily. We're usually picking something up to smell it. So I remember arguing with the coffee editor about the use of the word fat for a smell um, to describe the pizza dough, the fat smell of yeast. And I was like, but when you touch it, it 
it's like a belly, you know, it's like this, and it's like, and you're touching it to smell it. So there is a natural relationship there and exploring the way that we can dimensionalize senses, I think is one of the great things about writing. Oh, this resonates. My middle son loves to cook and often connects the world around him to what's happening in the kitchen. When he was little, he put his hand on my belly as I was reading him a story and said, Mommy, your tummy feels just like bread dough. I would have preferred something cooked, like a firm biscuit or even a scone. But I had to appreciate his connection to a remembered sensation, especially a nourishing one. And look what just happened. Fanny's words transported me to another place, a sweet, funny place with my son. This happened all the time while reading and listening to her book. Her voice is like smoky caramel, and it accompanied me on walks as I washed the dishes or pulled weeds from the garden. I often found myself stopping for a second to think about a memory sparked by something she had said, and off I'd go somewhere else like the chapter devoted entirely to salad. Soon, I was off on a salad memory. I'm in France, studying for the year, living in an apartment with my French roommate, Cecile. She's a law student and studies all the time. I'm in the kitchen and notice there's a vinaigrette pooling in the base of a bowl made from olive wood. Slices of endive are marinating in the vinaigrette. And fat pieces of walnut are in there too. It's only 3 p.m., but this is Cecile's advanced mise en place for her dinner. This simple scene had such an effect on me as a student. Cecile, my age, consumed by her classes, but taking the time to build flavor in the base of a salad bowl. Cecile and I are still friends. I asked her about her vinaigrette sitting in the bottom of an olive bowl. And she couldn't remember this at all. (laughs) So instead, she recited the Song de Salade for me, a little rhyme her grandmother used to sing. Un sage pour le sel, un prodigue pour l'huile, un avare pour le vinaigre, un fou pour le poivre. I tell Fanny about Cécile, about that memory, and Cécile's laughter at not remembering the mise en place that afternoon. And Fanny understands. I speak quite a bit about my French godmother, Martine, in the book. And these things that I remember that are so foundational to like how I think about what's possible in flavor, she doesn't even remember. I mean, she's so relentlessly procreative around recipes and flavor mixing, you know, just combinations and everything that it wouldn't even occur to her that she'd landed on something that would completely shatter my sense of what was possible, you know. And it requires going places that are not familiar to begin to expand the set of parameters by which you judge and you think about food. It's not possible during a pandemic to travel to unfamiliar places to expand how we think about food. So instead, we can seek out new cookbooks, diverse books, filled with voices new to us and travel through their words. And we can expand our own lexicon so we too can share our stories in an expansive way. Last summer, I traveled to the States for a workshop with my aunt Sandra Brownlee and my friend Michelle. Sandra was teaching a workshop that was a melange of her background in textiles, weaving, and tactile notebooking. Sandra nestled into her seat in my car with a picnic basket at her side. 
and opinions on where we should stop for lunch. Several hours in, just as the roadside fast food joints began to look appealing, Sandra guided me off the highway towards a beautiful rest spot at the base of a waterfall. There she pulled out salad rolls, cutlery, cloth napkins, and a jug of water. It was the most restorative pause I've ever had along Highway 2. Fanny shares a similar story in her book, a road trip taken with her mother after the Telluride Film Festival. It involved her mother's magical ability to procure fresh herbs, wine, a beeswax candle, a linen napkin, and enough camping gear to fry eggs on a picnic table. It's these moments, learning moments, that move me towards a life I'd like to live. Intentional, adventurous, and generous. Our trip was about diving deeper into a creative practice. Fanny and her mother's trip revolved around film. Alice Waters has been a regular at the Telluride Film Festival since its inception. She loves film. My mom is such a cinephile. The television is on every moment that she's not in a meeting, an old film is playing. So much so that I have to like, when we're actually having dinner together, I'm like, Mom, turn off your TV. Like, we can't, you can't have, you know, it's, it's just turn our classic movie channel on all the time. It's just like wall to wall. It's the only channel, I convince it's the only channel that we actually get on our TV. And every movie is her favorite movie. We, we wanted to screen like a favorite movie for her birthday on outside in the garden. And I was asking all of her friends and they were like, I don't know what her favorite movie is. So I was like, I don't know what her favorite movie is. And then I realized that my mom says, this is my favorite movie. Like every time I go to the living room, she's watching anything. Fanny tells me she isn't a cinephile like her mother. Aside from Jane Campion's film, Bright Star, a love story between English poet John Keats and his lover, Fanny Braun, which she says she watches at least once a year. Her world is more of a literary one. I just have like a early 20th century British naturalist's voice often. Like I just, the heroes for me are, you know, like the high romantic poets. I'm like, and then I just love, so love, so love Gerald Durrell's My Family and Other Animals and these these accounts of of life and nature and family life and nature and people, character studies that are so careful and attentive to language, which is something that Holy came from doing a PhD and just reading all the time and, you know, reading not just texts that were relevant to what I was doing, but also, you know, a PhD is the luxury of time, you know, it's just having protected, paid for time to read, like at, at its best. It's also torture, but, and highly unrecommended, but it, it's just, it was great for that. My Family and Other Animals, written by Gerard Durrell, is a hilarious account of five years of Durrell's childhood spent on the island of Corfu just before the Second World War. When it came to writing the book, his first wife recalled, Never have I known Jerry to work as he did then. It seemed to pour out of him. Durrell says that he started off like a good cook with three ingredients— a spellbinding Greek island before it was ruined by tourists, friendships with the locals, both animal and human, and his eccentric family. The book was an instant success. One of the shocking things was like how frictionless it was to write. I just didn't feel any kind of 
of the normal hang-ups that I feel when I'm writing, even criticism now. You know, I mean, it's, I was having to be accountable to no one. I mean, obviously loosely to fact, but like not to anyone else's subjective experience, just my own. So there was freedom in that. Fanny says she's at the beginning of the journey of how expression works. I imagine it's much like Durrell, where three ingredients, although delicious alone, are better in combination. Like chicken, onions, and carrots, bubbling away in a pot on the stove. Alice Waters makes a chicken stock wherever she goes. It's a tool, writes Fanny, to produce a feeling of home wherever you might find yourself. When she visited Fanny, wherever she was living, she'd arrive on the doorstep with a chicken already in her purse. Like the time that I, and I do mention it in the book, but when my mom made a chicken stock, insisted on making a chicken stock in our like really shitty quasi-tenement that my best friend and I were living in in New York that just had nowhere for the, any aroma. We almost stopped cooking that year because anything that was not raw made the house like just trap in the living room because there was nowhere for anything to vent. Like the vent, I think, just went directly into the bathroom and, you know, which meant also that the sink drained into the same thing as the bathroom. So occasionally there'd just be like weak old kitchen detritus like in the bathtub. It was just such a, and yet my mom like marching in there making a stock and I just remember for like two weeks it just the whole place smelled like chicken stock. Just was like living in a bouillon cube. Oh, I know. And my sister Jessie knows. But as we've grown, we've learned that somewhere along the line, those ingredients become more than the sum of their parts. They become the feeling of home. They become soup. Nourishing, loving, life-saving soup. So big thanks to Fanny Singer. You can find her at fannysinger.com. That will take you to her Instagram page and her book, Always Home, to her writing and her shop, Permanent Collection. You can find show notes to this episode at thefoodpodcast.com. And you can find me on Instagram at Lindsay Cameron Wilson or at The Food Podcast. Let me know what you think, how you're doing, and what you're cooking at home these days. And please sign up for my newsletter where I'll keep you up to date on podcast news and share backstories from the episodes. And sometimes there are recipes in there too. You can sign up at lindsaycameronwilson.ca. And as always, thanks to Jen Grant for our theme song. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 